welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Welcome, friends. I'm happy to be here today with Dr. Letty B. Brown. She is a Fulbright scholar and scientist who specializes in restoration, conservation planning, and nature-based solutions to climate change. Letty has worked in the forests of the United States, Brazil, Costa Rica, Colombia, Ecuador, Guatemala, Cambodia, Peru, Indonesia, Kenya, all the forests of the world, <laughs> I think, have been covered. Um, Letty holds a PhD in forest science from the University of California, Berkeley, and she did her postdoctoral work in Brazil, where she conducted remote sensing and ground-based research to map and designate conservation targets for a portion of the Brazilian Atlantic Forest. Letty, um, you and I know each other from our personal lives in San Francisco. I since. 2010, I think. Yes. The, you know, the first time I met you, I, we had this intersection on travel and kind of a shared uh, value around conservation, but I didn't, it hasn't really started to come together for me because your work has always been, I felt really technical. So tell me, you know, those were a lot of technical words that came out there remote sensing and ground-based research, like what in plain talk, what do you, what do you do out there in these forests? That's great. Yes. Um, and I remember that meeting well, 2010 at the chat um, <laughs> at, a <party. laughs> at a party. Um, well, yeah, so I'm, I'm a forest scientist and, um, yeah, basically I've been measuring trees since I was 18. Um, always for conservation reasons of, you know, various sorts, like, you know, how does this forest respond to a invasive tree pathogen or something like that, or, or mapping succession, um, in, in a forest in Costa Rica. What is um, succession? Succession is, um, when you cut down a forest and then it begins to regrow, um, how does that, how does that look? How, how, what comes back? How quickly does it come back? Um, what species dominate? Uh, that that sort of thing. It's important. And how, yeah, how, Letty, how does it happen? Like, how do you map that? You go into the woods with a notebook and a laptop, and you what? You plot where each tree is. You count them. Yeah, not not even a laptop. We just uh, sort of a, a pen and paper, and it was. Uh, an area of trees that had been mapped before by a famous ecologist named Hubble. And so we, I was working for a graduate student from the University of New Mexico, actually. And he his dissertation work was to remeasure these trees that hadn't been measured for 20 years. Um, measure meaning the, um, their girth, their height. Their, um, we weren't doing height even. We were doing girth. We were doing diameter at breast height. And then we were also identifying the species. So this was this was in a national park in Costa Rica, and um, there were like over a hundred species of trees, which just blew my mind. And we had to figure out which you know which ones each each tree was down to species. Um, 
So it was really fun. Uh, there, so there's two. So you grew up in Bolinas, California, or San Francisco, but I always think of you as like a beach girl out there. <laughs> and then you're a teenager, and then you go down to Costa Rica. So you're taking an exotic trip and mm-hmm. doing conservation work. Did you go with your parents? What What was the most fun for you on that first exploration? Yeah, this was actually a um, just a wild serendipitous um, occasion where my mother, who, yes, I grew up in San Francisco. My mom was an art historian at the De Young Museum in the Golden Gate Park. And she had a friend over and the friend's husband, who the, the friend was, was also a um, curator, uh, worked in a museum. And the friend... Uh, and the friend's husband was an ecologist and he was a professor at the university of New Mexico. And he, we, we started talking and I was already interested in science and biology and ecology and the outdoors. And he said, well, I have this graduate student. He's looking for a field worker, you know, it would be um, the pay would not be very good, but you could spend, you know, the summer um, mapping trees in Costa Rica. And I said, sure. <laughs> That sounds great. Sign me up. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) It feels like, you know, coming from the travel, adventure travel category, that is also something that would be in these days, like a volunteer tourism experience. Yes. Yes. Good point. Absolutely. And I I remember getting down there and it was, um, I remember we pulled up and it was the researchers' quarters where I ended up living all summer. And all the researchers were huddled around something, um, just fascinated. And it turned out it was monkey poop. And they were dissecting it to figure out what the monkeys had been eating. And that was it for me. I was like, this is, this is I, I can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else than <laughs> these people fascinated by what the monkeys are eating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Awesome. Well, what, so you've been in forests all around the world. What, I mean, the million dollar question, what do you, what's some of your observations on the effect of, of warming on forests? What do people like you see when they go into a forest? I see all this green and I think it's beautiful, but I bet you see more. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say I don't actually, I'm trying to think about the tropical forest that I've been in, I don't see evidence of warming, although there is scientific evidence that points to changes that are happening. Um, more what I see is, you know, the degradation around the world's intact forests. So the Amazon, you know, it takes longer to get into these um, intact forests on a, on a dugout canoe. It could be like an eight hour, you know, boat ride or something. Um and then, have you ever taken an eight-hour boat ride? To <laughs> yeah. I have, yeah. Where was that? What was that? That was in Brazil. I think it was 10 hours, actually. it was. I was really sore by the end. But um, actually, in Peru as well. Um, in Peru, we were go- – this was um, for, for a nonprofit I work with called Wild Force and Fauna. And we were having a board meeting in uh, a remote – area of the uh, Madre de Dios, which is the southern, eastern portion of the Amazon forest in Peru. Oh, you, 
You just have a board meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so rad. It's, yeah, it's a really remote area. There are uncontacted, you know, indigenous tribes in these areas and all sorts of just amazing animals like giant river otters. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that, that was one time. And then another time was for work um, in the last couple of years to Brazil in, mm-hmm. into the state of Acre. So you, what you do see is degradation of these areas, not so much warming impact on the trees themselves. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I mean, as you know, it's, it's different, you know, everywhere you go, the context is, is different. I'm I'm thinking about some of the forest carbon projects I visited in Cambodia. We've been doing quite a bit of work there over the last several years. And um, there it is, uh, it is rampant illegal logging that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can be, you know, deep in an area of intact forest and come to this this random logging road and and there's been selective logging of a of a teak or or some sort of high value you know tree there and so suddenly there's a, a huge stump and evidence of recent you know um, access and you can also I remember seeing that in in Cambodia as well as Asian elephant um, dung nearby. Mm-hmm. That that was sort of deep in the forest where we were working. Whereas in Brazil, it's more like you know agricultural fronts getting deeper and deeper mm-hmm. into the forest. It's so I find these things so hard to parse because part of me is like the emotion is like Ugh! you know like standing there with my fists clenched and then and then but of course then you think what's what is the living situation for the people who are doing these illegal cuts? And yes. nobody's a bad person in this scenario. It really shows the interconnectedness, I guess, of environmental justice and social justice and mm-hmm. all the UN SDGs. Do you guys get into any of, like, are the the people who hire you, is that... What's their perspective on all this? Or do you just keep a very narrow lane? Um, they're, I mean, they're in alignment, I think, with with what you're saying. And the the carbon project, the forest carbon projects that, that we work on are very much about, you know, the communities, um, supporting the communities to, you know, help them not take down the forests around them, not rely on the forests for their livelihoods. So, to help them, you know, develop alternate livelihoods um, and maybe more sustainable agricultural, you know, ag intensification practices or, um, yeah, various alternative ecotourism, Mm community-based ecotourism, again, a nexus um, with what you do and that sort of thing. So it's it's really these these forest carbon projects that are happening all around the world are really about supporting the local communities mm-hmm. to, to to not extract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it is the yeah. It's a very same mission. We say the same things. Where you say forest carbon projects to help local communities not extract, we say ecotourism to help local <laughs> yeah. You so one thing I had in our in your bio that I didn't read in the, in the beginning, but we should get to now is you're working on land based sequestration projects 
seeking credit for reduced emissions in California and abroad through avoided deforestation and forest degradation, improved land management, climate smart agriculture, and restoration of natural ecosystems. So some helpful. Yeah. Well, no, but it's it's so so break it down because people are hiring you to authorize their credit for reduced emissions through trees, basically. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. These are carbon reduction credits. So emission reductions through, you know, the voluntary uh, market predominantly, as well as um, the California compliance market. So the voluntary market, that would be like if I'm a traveler and I offset my flight and I choose to offset it with South Pole uh, and I, and I pay, I say, I choose and they have such a cool, you know, you can shop for forests that you want to support. So I click Atlantic Rainforest, and that's a that's a voluntary carbon offset. Yes, that is exactly mm-hmm. it. And so we we think of ourselves um, as as the integrity police, or sort of protecting the integrity mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. those those reductions. You want to know when you buy that. You want to have the confidence that that those are real permanent, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, actually additional, mm-hmm. um, offset, you know, carbon reduction credits. So, um, that's, that's where we come in is, is we are the folks deployed <laughs> out to these forest projects, like in the Atlantic forest, as you mentioned, um, looking at, you know, on the ground, um, looking at the forest areas, um, interviewing the communities, uh, mm-hmm. making sure all the claims that are stated are, are actually what, what we're seeing. And, and somebody uh, pays you because how many people go out in this team? Um, it, it really depends because there, there's such a, 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 wi- a wide scale. Like to, to tell you more on the upper end, for instance, for the, the country of Ecuador, we were deployed to look at um, the entire country of Ecuador's emission reductions, um, and and who hired us to do that was a donor country. So in this case, mm-hmm. it was the country of Norway and the country of Germany, and so we were sent in to look at um, to look at their basically their their national forest monitoring system. So mm-hmm. so using, so yeah. so Norway. And what was the other donor country? Germany. Right. They are giving money to Ecuador. So wealthy countries are saying, Ecuador, less money. We want to help you be viable and sustainable. We're going to give you money for emissions reduction. Say more what that means. We're giving, say what that is. Yeah, that's right. So these are results-based payments for reducing deforestation Uh in in Ecuador. So it's uh, rich countries say to the poor countries, I'm going to pay you to not cut down your forest. Exactly. And they've been doing that actually since 2015. Um, And uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty neat. So, so Ecuador has a national forest monitoring system um, and they're, you know, abiding by the rules of carbon accounting that are established by the UNFCCC, mm-hmm. right? So the United Nations and um, 
basically each ton of carbon dioxide equivalent that they remove um, is rewarded at a value of $5 USD, USD, United States dollars. So, And you are there saying this carbon is actually getting removed. This forest is still standing and these trees are still absorbing CO2. Yeah, exactly. So in that case, it was a team of two of us who were sent in and looking at very technical things, like you said, like satellite imagery, pre-processing and band stacking and radiometric calibration and cloud masking and all these different things to make sure that the carbon was being calculated accurately. You know, we were taking samples of data and making sure that we were getting the same numbers and that all was in line with, um, you know, the UN FCCC guidelines on best practices for carbon accounting. I read on a a USDA blog somewhere about the the amount of CO2 that a mature tree absorbs, and I can't remember exactly what it was, how much CO2 can be absorbed by the natural forest in Ecuador? Uh, That's a good question. I wish I had those numbers right on the tip of my tongue. I know I remember for a project we worked on in Cambodia, which was in uh, this magical forest called the Southern Cardamans, this Mm, south mm -hmm. southeastern portion Mm -hmm. of Cambodia, um, where the project is for a forest carbon project protects half a million hectares Uh of rainforest. Um, and I remember that they were preventing more than 3 million tons of carbon emissions annually. So Uh 3 million, yeah, tons CO2 E. Uh Um, so that gives you an idea. Um, Uh but, but it's all, you know, as you know, Christina, it's all about the difference between sort of the, the, what we call the baseline scenario and mm-hmm. the project scenario. So the I way- I don't actually know that. Okay, so okay. it makes perfect sense though, in any scenario is how much we do this with our like event impact. You know, how many, how many tourists were generating how much money before we showed up? And now that we've strengthened all these local businesses, they're- selling more trips or getting people to stay longer and spend more. Mm-hmm. You have to baseline everything. Exactly. Yeah. So you that's... baseline what a forest is doing first. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's so expensive, all this research. <laughs> How many months go? So it takes years to put something like this in place, right? Because first you have baseline it. That takes a trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the project developers do that. And yes, absolutely can take years to develop these baselines. Although I will say, and this I think is a fascinating development under the the UN, well, under the COP, Conference of the Parties, like, you know, Paris COP 20, um, the, the there's a framework being developed such that actual um, countries, countrywide baselines are being developed. And mm-hmm. that makes... That makes it a lot easier for mm-hmm. these projects um, to proceed. takes mm-hmm. takes less time. So that's yeah, that's kind of the wave of of what's what's happening now, and the wave of the future is is baselines developed more at the country or subnational level rather than at these project levels. 
One of the things that's so, you know, I'm a new entrant into climate action and what different ways to absorb and remove carbon and store it. And one of the things that I have noticed is this sort of um, tension around different types of of climate action solutions. So there's like the Trillion Trees Initiative that I feel like the popular press really wants to find a quick, like if we converted all this land to trees, we'd be saved. And then, you know, a bunch of other people are debunking. It's such a, it feels so contentious out there. What's your, um, like, how do you, what's your take on that landscape of natural solutions alongside technical solutions for carbon removal. Of course, we mm. know tomorrow's air is I'm we're focused right now on carbon removal with permanent storage through direct air capture. So we're on the technical end of the spectrum at the moment. I believe that all the all the solutions are what we need. Um, mm-hmm. but what, how do you how do people in your community talk about this? Mm, such a good question. Yeah, I, I, all of the above to what you just said, right? I mean, first and foremost, we reduce fossil fuel use, fossil fuel use, you know, innovative carbon, uh, clean, clean technologies to reduce fossil fuel use as much as possible. Um, and then, well, the way we talk about it in the land-based sector is that, um, is that through natural climate solutions, so, you know, forest, grasslands, wetlands, um, we can deliver up to a third of global emission reductions um, mm-hmm. needed globally by 2030. So, so that's, forest, yeah. So I'm learning so much. So the land-based sector, so there's also like a water sector. What are the sectors? <laughs> yeah. So, well, obviously forests are not the only land-based sector that that can capture and store carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. But there's also, you know, grasslands, wetlands. We're seeing, um, like you said, water. There's blue carbon is mm-hmm. is a bigger and bigger deal. And so we've been doing, there's, um, we just, just did a big project in the California Delta, whereby if you restore areas that were previously ag to wetland, like they'd been before, um, those actually are a huge carbon uh, mm-hmm. sink and store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, obviously climate uh, smart agriculture is, is a huge deal right now, trying to figure out how to um, manage agricultural lands, you know, no-till, cover mm-hmm. cropping, all sorts of changes that can sequester more carbon. So um, the land-based sector could capture 30% of what? Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, of um, up to a third of the global emission reductions needed by 2030 to get to to the goal of um, two degrees, or I think I think 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm writing that down. We um, so the I was in a conversation yesterday that was we were looking at okay 1.5. We don't want to raise temperatures more than 1.5. We want to remove 10 gigatons of CO2 a year by 2050 and the, the, you know, the percentages of where that comes from, the balance 
of these different solutions. And we're talking about a carbon, like the the growing percentage of carbon removal that will happen through direct air capture and other forms alongside the tree. And the, you know, getting the global sense of this, right? Like how do you, how do you build the pie chart that, that feeds in all these little increments into that big story? I feel like that, Am I right that the integration of all these different components is the the crux of the problem? Yeah, absolutely. It it is because it's it's such an ambitious goal, especially the one point five, um, given the track that we're on. And mm-hmm. I should say that this this science um, came from a Nature Conservancy paper that that was released a couple years ago, and then what's the name know, of that paper? Do you know? Um, let me see. It was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. Yeah. And it's, um, it's led by TNC, but 15 other institutions as well. Mm-hmm. And they demonstrated that nature-based solutions can provide up to 37% mm-hmm. of the emission reductions needed by 2030, but they're talking about keeping global temps, um, increases under two degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but that was a big finding because that was about 30% more than had previously been estimated. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you and, feel, yeah. do you feel hopeful in all this, Letty? Like, what's your, what do you think? I I do. Some days I do. Um, some days I don't. I mean, obviously it, it was hard that this fire season was, was very disconcerting in California. Mm-hmm. We had, I mean as you and I have talked about, 4% of the state burned this year. So over 4 million acres of California's 100 million acres actually burned between August and uh, November. And obviously that's, and actually continues to burn right now. There's there's still a few fires. Um, there's one right near me in Reno, um, which is really strange because there's also snow on the ground here. But um but yeah, so that sort of thing is is disconcerting. But I also think that, you know, California is in need of such a rework in forest management, sort of a mm-hmm. ramp up because we've we've had fire suppression mm-hmm. as part of our rubric now for a hundred years. And we know that these vegetation communities, especially up here in the Sierra Nevada, they're supposed to burn every five years. Mm -hmm. So it's just such, you know, such a a load of fuel. Um, Mm -hmm. And then of course, climate change and drought is, is a threat multiplier and hence, hence these fires. We're already already warmer. I think that's part of, I remember um, hearing somebody say that some of the that's a lot of vague things. Somebody said, um, <laughs> I was in a conference. It was one of these uh, climate action conferences. But the speaker said, we're already in a warmed world. And so the models for these scenarios are based on a scenario that we're not even living in anymore. So this threat multiplier, do you think that's, I'm getting way in the weeds now, but do you, do you have any experience with models that you think the assumptions 
are not right? Or are people in your community talking about creating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the, the biggest concern with the global climate models is that we're not getting the feedback loops right. So mm-hmm. for instance, That's not a clear thing to say, we're not getting the <laughs> feedback loops right. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, for instance, the albedo effect at the poles, you know, as, as, as the white, the, the snow, the ice turns to darker colors, um, we're getting more and more absorption and that feedback loop is not um, as, as clear. We don't know the, the exact numbers. We don't know how quickly that could happen and what impact that could have on the models, but that's, that's a really big one. And that's just one example. Um, obviously the oceans, you know, store a huge amount of, um, carbon. Um, and so how, how, how quickly those warm and what impact, um, the, or, you know, the, uh, the boreal forests, um, release of methane, that sort of thing. So all these feedback loops that we don't, we don't quite know the magnitude of, but, um, so I think that's probably the biggest, um, you know, factor that is throwing off those models, the global, the global models, um, at this point. And I know that there's some really very, uh, so many smart people working on, on getting those right. And you've been traveling the world, working on this kind of stuff now since you were 18. So I'm not going to say our ages, but <laughs> More than fifteen years. A little while, yeah. What's your what? Give me like your best travel plus science anecdote. I think the monkey poop was a great one for starters. <laughs> but I, you know, I I think it's so fun how you can. I think traveling for work is really great because you end up having experiences that fall into kind of an entertainment like category, but they seem less contrived because you're there with a different mission? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I one, one uh, travel stint that comes to mind was a, a trip to Alaska. Um, and I know you're from Alaska, uh, but we were, I was there with a group. You asked how, how big these teams are. We were about, there were about eight of us. Um, last August when you could travel. Um, and we were there again for a forest, forest carbon project. Um, this time with the, uh, we do a lot of work with um, tribes, corporations. Um, so uh, this was the Huna um, native uh, tribe or native corporation that uh, was based on the Chichagov Island, which has the highest concentration of grizzly bears on the planet. Um, and we were there as a group of um, four scientists to measure trees and um, ensure that an improved forest management project was, um, you know, had had conducted all the measurements correctly and was um, basically in line with sort of the highest integrity. And um, yeah, so that was fascinating because I've never uh, worked mm-hmm. in a place with you know, so grizzly, bears. grizzly bears. So <laughs> like each of us had our own bear guard and I had this um, amazing bear guard named Tabitha. All the other bear guards were, were male. 
And so Tabitha and I when would travel. Guard, I was imagining some kind of like exoskeleton. And then you said, <laughs> Tabitha. I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a woman. Okay. It's a this person. Great. Yes. Yeah. And so she, she traveled with a gun and, and we covered a great deal of distance um, together. We, we were with several other people as well. Um, and our job was to hike out sometimes, you know, five hours of hiking to these areas um, that had forest carbon plots in them and to remeasure, you know, the plots and make sure that we were getting similar, um, similar measurements. And uh, we, and did you? we did, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we had randomized which plots we visited. And I remember we, we, <laughs> we selected one that was right near a salmon run and this yeah. happened to be when the salmon were running. Yeah. So we knew. Right. What an experience. <laughs> we knew so the grizzlies. Nice. And yeah, it was it was a trip. Like every step that I took in that forest. And these were, you know, ancient spruce forests. Beautiful, huge, huge trees. Um, and uh, you could just, you could smell the grizzlies you could see their tracks uh, you could see their dens I remember our plot that we measured was was right it was there was a den in the middle of you know and there was a, a path that the grizzlies were using oh clearly word. to get to the salmon stream <laughs> right in the middle of our plot and right. of course there was a grizzly right off um right off the plot as we were taking measurements and Tabitha and the other bear guards were were um, watching it, you know, carefully making noises to sort of try to mm-hmm. make it clear that we were there, and and we worked very careful, very fast, very quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> during that during that plot. But and that did was you stay intense, or you stayed in a cabin. We used to go to uh, Lake Clark National Forest when I was a kid, and there were bears then. There's way more bears now. When I went out there recently. We were in a cabin and I felt we left a lunchbox, Jack's little lunchbox on the porch and it got mosched. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was, uh, we did not stay intense on that project. We were in a, in a hotel. Um, There's a hotel out there. Yeah, there was a hotel out there. But we, I remember actually we had to take a boat to get to the forest where we were working that day. And on the boat ride, we were on a little boat little motorboat we saw you know orca and we saw humpback whale um it was it was magical so your job is the best i think your job embodies exactly this travel and climate action theme is the you're the perfect guest amazing <laughs> so what if i want i feel like people who listen to this are going to be saying i want that job um so how did you get this job I think, you know, I think, well, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd been measuring trees since I was 18 or 19 for for various purposes. And then about uh, 10 years ago, I realized that I could measure trees and help for, you know, landowners or, or, or nonprofits or whatever entities that wanted to conserve forests, um, uh, make money, bring in finance through this, you know, nebulous, nebulous world of the the the, the carbon um, offset market. 
so that's that's where everything turned around for me and I realized um you know what a tangible contribution that could be doing you know what I'd always done which was these you know forest science projects um with you know conservation outcomes mm-hmm. so this this was yeah like I said the most tangible um I mean you out- had to get a PhD. I got a PhD. <laughs> so there's that. Right. Right. And, and, um, you know, thank goodness for California. That's, that's how I learned about it was these, was the, the California cap and trade mm-hmm. compliance market was just getting started under Arnold Schwarzenegger, 2006, the global warming solutions mm-hmm. act, Republican mm-hmm. governor. And mm-hmm. in 2008, I happened to be living in Sacramento and I learned that the California Air Resources Board was conducting, you know, hearings public mm-hmm. um, in regard to allowing these forest-based projects to kind of become part of the solution, part of um, for these for the Global Warming Solutions what year? Act. Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight was when I yep was when I started going to these hearings, and this was and the. Was- at- was that kind of the beginning of people saying forests? Yeah, it part was. Of this? Well, wow. yeah, it really was. I mean, I think there had been some work before that, especially on the voluntary market, but to the, you know, under sort of the very, very rigorous compliance cap and trade market. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so it's really been in the last, um, what is that, 2008, 12 years that this, um, this really, you know, this market has come into fruition and gotten to a place where it, where there's the rigor, um, Mm -hmm. and the science base, you know, that the studies, um, to support and allow for, you know, buyer consumer confidence to, Mm -hmm. to buy into these, to these projects. Like you said, the, on the voluntary side for travel, for, for Mm -hmm. offset offsets for travel, um, for big corporations like Walt Disney, you know, they are very involved in buying carbon offset projects mm-hmm. from forests um, all around the world, including mm-hmm. the ones I've worked on in Cambodia. And um, and then also governments, more and more governments. And I think that's, that's where we're going is that the national um, determined contributions that are mandate are uh, now being developed under, I shouldn't say mandated, but are being developed under the UN framework that comes out of these conference of the parties um, is going to, is going to accelerate government um, uh, participation Mm -hmm. in these, in these programs. So you mentioned, so, uh, you know, the other thing that's been on our mind, obviously with tomorrow's air is the power of the consumer to take climate action into their own hands. And it's one thing to kind of observe all that governments are doing and try and elect the right guy. Um, but we can also chip in ourselves and we can always vote with our pocketbooks in terms of brands that we support. And you just mentioned Walt Disney. And I, so say more about that. I think that's so interesting because who, like, I like Walt Disney better just for this like snippet of you saying they're supporting what florists they're t- say what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. So they, so Walt Disney Corporation, they have a very aggressive internal policy 
wherein they basically have developed caps for each of their departments. So they've got their toy department, they've got their, you know, carbon cap, emissions cap. a carbon emissions cap. Yeah. They've mm-hmm. got their cruise ships, mm-hmm. you know, they've got, what else does Walt Disney do? Uh, their movie production, <laughs> their shows, you know, they do so much. Each one of those internal departments has a cap on emissions and it's coming down each year. So they're trying to meet those caps by reducing directly the emissions within each of those um, departments. But for any Delta where they're not able to reduce that, um, they're purchasing offset credits predominantly from forest carbon projects all around the world. Love them. Isn't that great? It's great. I, I, these stories, maybe everybody else is familiar and knows it, but I, that's like news to me. I don't Um, think so. Yeah. It's great. Letty. I love chatting with you. I'm going to wrap us up with, I want to know though. I, we met at a party and I know that girl can dance. So I have to ask you, (laughs) like I ask everybody, um, at the end about your musical tastes. Tell me some, Tell me some stuff you like to listen to now. <laughs> and also, if you could put it in context with what were you listening to um, when you were 18? Oh, my gosh. That's okay. That's a great question. Um, this is what you ask all your guests. I love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to put playlists at the end of every podcast. Okay. Well, I'll tell you. So nowadays... Um, Ever since I lived in Brazil for those two years, right before you and I met, actually, oh, we, Christina, we forgot to like, yeah, that about you. It's rusty, but yes, I, I did at one point speak better Portuguese, but yeah, so samba music to me, mm-hmm. especially when there are um, drums involved, like the um, what is it called? The bachucada is a type, it's like a subset of samba music. Mm-hmm. where there are these large drums. And to me, um, that's just the most, that's when I feel the most alive and joyous is hearing that type of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard it, you know, first in the streets of Brazil where I was living. I heard it during Carnival, of course, um, every February there um, in the streets of Recife and Olinda. And then I've been so thankful to find it in San Francisco too, because, you know, we have the San Francisco carnival and I danced in it. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's, um, it's just a a wonderful sort of street, uh, joyous form of music. So that's today. And then when I was 18, I was really into the Grateful Dead. Um, I was, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe West coast thing growing up in the Haight-Ashbury. I don't know. Um, I uh, actually clearly remember being out measuring trees in Costa Rica one summer because I ended up doing it multiple summers and learning that Jerry Garcia had died and being so mm-hmm. just so sad. But um, but yeah, that's that was part of my high school and early college experience was was uh, the Grateful Dead. That's awesome. Letty Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us today. 
I hope to have you back. I think we should come back in a year and hear how some of these other trees are doing. That'd be great. I'd love it. I'd love it. We can talk about where the uh, nature-based solutions carbon market is going. There might be a lot of changes under Biden and Harris. And Oh, man. Now that yeah. we're re-entering and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm.